Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Now, something else that uh, may whet your appetite, live music and so much more. The program for 10 Days on the Island has been launched. 10 Days on the Island uh, is a pan-Tasmanian festival that, unlike, say, the Melbourne Festival, 10 Days fills all the different corners of Tasmania. Joining us on the line is Lindy Hume, the Artistic Director of 10 Days on the Island. Lindy, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. So one of the things that intrigues me about this festival, which I understand is celebrating its 20th year this year, uh, is the way it's evolved over time. When it was established back in the day, it focused on the the idea of islands and islandness, bringing in work from Ireland or Iceland or other (laughs) other island nations around the world. It's shifted Mm. over time uh, and is very much, as, as we've said, a, a pan-Tasmanian festival. Tell us about that challenge of trying to create a festival that will appeal to all the different niches and corners and communities across Tasmania. That's a, a bit of a big ask. It is a big ask. It's an epic ask, actually, because, you know, Tasmania is such an extraordinary place and such a, a diverse um, set of communities all on this one island. And I guess... Um, I guess one of the things that, that makes it easier to do that is that um, the team is based in Burnie where we have um, a community in the northwest that is a, an incredibly creative community, but it, it also means that we can sort of spread out across the island, um, across to, to, to Launceston and Devonport and, you know, the west and all the places nearby Burnie, and then we spend quite a lot of time in Hobart. It's actually possible to traverse the island but the, the point of all of that is to get really get into and work with the communities that we serve and to um to try and try and get to know the nooks and crannies of each of those places and the the i guess idiosyncra- idiosyncrasies of those places but also their cultural strengths and their concerns and what matters to them and then of course there are the <clears throat> amazing physicalities of each of those places so you know I think the point is that it's not one size fits all that it's very particular and very bespoke now, one of the ways that the festival works with different communities across the island is, uh, I guess, what you'd call the signature program of the festival, If These Halls Could Talk, which uh, connects with communities and community halls uh, across yeah. the island, from uh, from Zeehan to New Norfolk, for example, and uh, Scottsdale uh, across to Glen Hewen. So kind of really making sure that it's not just... Uh, people coming to the festival in some of the larger cities, but the festival going out to the people and connecting with these really significant little local community venues. Yeah, significant and very particular. Uh, very, um, well, I mean, one says unique because they, they really are. But, yeah, we're in all of those those big cities, Hobart uh, and Launceston, but also in each of those places, and they are really extraordinary. And one of the great things about If These Halls Could Talk is... We had it in the program uh, before COVID, but um, it, in 
in the sort of winter, COVID winter of last year, it beca- it had it started to take on a completely different significance within the program. It, it, immediately, we started to look at it as a signature, if you like. You know, a festival always has these sort of you know signature or centerpiece works, and they are the ones that everyone grabs onto and tend to be ones with large numbers of people. But in that in that sense, we sort of tipped the idea of the centerpiece or the signature sideways so that it's built out horizontally across the whole island and so each of these uh, halls is part of the greater uh, the greater work of if these halls could talk each each of them from Zian to Liffey to Roella to um, Ross and all the ones the others that you've named have uh, resident artists and resident pr- projects and resident writers um, and um, in residence obviously throughout the throughout 2021 2020 as much as we could and certainly right now, all the artists are out in their communities working with those communities to not just put a plonk a bit of work in a, in a hall, but really engage with those places to develop work in collaboration with those places. So, yeah, it's been a very important project for us to stay in touch with our communities across Tasmania. But it's sort of also an amazing way for people in, for example, Stanley to see TSO and for people in Rowella to see Taz Dance and for people in uh, Ross to see Julie Goff, all these amazing performers, Van Diemen's Band in St. Helens and, um, you know, Johannes Fritsch and Samuel Dundas in Glen Hewen and films and poetry. So it's a kind of an extraordinary way of seeing the island and if if people only see those 10 halls across those three weekends, I would be very happy that they had a really great um, kind of sample of what 10 Days on the Island is about. It really strikes me as something that in terms of cultural tourism now that, and hopefully the borders between Victoria and Tasmania stay open uh, before the, the festival kicks off, but the, the idea that somebody from, uh, from the mainland could come down and over the course of the festival weave their way from hall to hall not only would they see a, a broad range of really interesting art and artwork, but they would have very bespoke and distinct experiences of Tasmania that go f- well beyond the, the traditional tourism centres of the island. A hundred percent. I think that's absolutely right. And they would see things in the, ha- the context of those halls that they would no- normally never be able to see in Melbourne or Sydney. And they're really extraordinary things. Like, I have to say, one of my absolute favourite things is the idea of going to see the uh, Leonard's Beautiful Pictures, which is this extraordinary um, collection of 120-year-old films that have been uh, that are from the vaudeville era from France and the US and uh, and Australia, reproduced by the National Film and Sound Archives and set to new musical score in a place like Zion, which is where it's premiering. It's an extraordinary cultural kind of moment, but to happen in in that ghost town that was once the third biggest city in a, in, in Tasmania and had people like in a theatre that the gaiety which is has to be seen to be believed it's this almost baroque theatre in the middle of this almost like a western town with tumbleweeds down the down the street and it's the most an ex, most extraordinary opportunity to sort of see a once was extraordinary city revisited in in a with a project that has that sort of speaks to that period when it was in its heyday when Nellie Melba was there and the Corrick family was there and the J, they were on the JC Williamson circuit and it's the middle of of you know such harsh 
territory and the mining in the mining centre of the west coast of Tasmania. Uh, and you would never get that experience in any other part of the world. But if you see that in Tasmania, they can go, then go down in the third weekend of the festival and hear the most gorgeous chamber music in um, in Glen Hewen with, you know, three artists who would normally be performing in, you know, the opera houses and concert halls of Europe, but no one's going to Europe anytime soon, so they're performing in Glen Hewen. So it's an extraordinary um, opportunity to, to sort of have un- really, really unusual um, arts experiences. Now, one of the things that's obviously unique about the program too is the fact that it is acknowledging and reflecting the fact that what we now call Tasmania is Palawa Pakana country. So how mm. is that reflected in your programming? Uh, well, we we start the festival, the whole festival begins um, at dawn, well, pre-dawn actually, um, on the opening weekend with uh, a, a thing we call Mapali, Mapali Dawn Gathering. Mapali is a Palawa uh, Pakana word for gather together, and um, we have our cultural sort of welcome for the entire west coast and north coast up on the beach in in on with fires and drumming and so forth in with Mapali Dawn Gathering. This is a project that we created last festival in in the Devonport near the near the Bluff in Devonport, and it became immediately kind of an iconic moment for um, for the community but also for um, for us as a festival as a way of acknowledging traditional ownership of the of Lutuida, Tasmania. We have a number of other projects throughout the um, the festival. Nathan Maynard's new play Hide the Dog will after after having sadly been um, bumped from Sydney Festival because of the COVID um, quarantine uh, the Northern Beaches flare up. It, it will, in fact, have its its Australian premiere, um, world premiere in Tasmania, and that's a fantastic cross um, cross cultural. So it's Maori and Palawa um, family show with a complete First Nations cast. Um, we're also premiering the first um, a new piece by Sinza Mansell, who is the I guess the sort of leading Pakana dancer in in Tasmania, and she's working with Kate Champion on her show Back, which is a sort of uh, tribute show to her her grandparents have, and the and the strong the women of Tasmania who really put up this this resistance to the colonisation, and so that's there's a very strong of Tasmanian Aboriginal voices through the festival. Julie Goff in in um, Ross, whose work is a representation of a sort of alternative history of um, the Midlands of, of Tasmania. So, yeah, it's it's definitely there and definitely strong and, and very much part of who we are as a festival. And the festival then also acknowledges and uh, represents newcomers to Tasmania as, as well. So uh, the likes of uh, Marta Dusseldorp and Ben Winsby, who've been living in Hobart for a few years now, presenting uh, Venus and Adonai for example, which I believe has already had one sold-out season. Is that right? Yeah, it was in uh, Hobart. It was delightful, actually. In, in Weirdly enough, this sort of Shakespeare's erotic uh, poem was uh, commissioned, <laughs> this, this sort of reading of it and, and a new commission by um, um, Tom Rhymes uh, was commissioned by the St David's Cathedral here in, um, in Hobart. 
Um, so it's actually, you know, that that was created down here in Hobart during lockdown, and Shakespeare wrote the play, wrote the wrote the poem during the plague. So that's the connection there. And then um, uh, we're putting that into uh, Burnie um, Arts and Function Centre, the Westbury. Cathedral and into uh, Launceston as well. So that's a really great opportunity for artists outside of Hobart to hear um, hear and, and experience this beautiful Shakespeare poem and read by Marta and Ben, who are formidable um, actors, as we know, a brand new score um, by Tom Rhymes. So it's a really an amazing opportunity for people to hear something that would normally not be able to hear uh, because it, who, who performs Venus and Adonis these days <laughs> apart from Marta and Ben in lockdown? Now, uh, we mentioned Robin Archer at the start of our conversation, who was the founding artistic director of 10 Days on the Island. She's presenting a new work in the festival this year, which is a lovely kind of linking uh, of the history. But I also wanted to acknowledge uh, a work that is quintessentially uh, of Launceston, perhaps, the marvellous Corex, who you briefly mentioned earlier, uh, an old school uh, showbiz family who kind of settled in Launceston Launceston, uh, and this is a work that is kind of acknowledging their contribution not only to the history of Lonnie, but the history of entertainment in Australia. Yeah, I mean, I find it so fascinating that, that um, they're so little known or so little spoken about because they were huge, this family. They were, you know, quite an extraordinary looking group of people for a start, mum and dad and um, seven extraordinary girls and Leonard, the, the, the one son, who, as I mentioned earlier, was the sort of tech nerd of the family and the filmmaker of the of the family and he created Leonard's beautiful pictures. But yeah, the marvellous Corex performed all around Tasmania, all around Australia, all around the world and settled in um, in Launceston in the um, after they retired in uh, 1915 um, and continued to have a very strong musical life. But during their heyday, they were people to People travelled absolutely, you know, across the country to hear and see the, the marvellous Corex, who did everything. All the all the girls and and Leonard played multiple instruments. They all sang. They all danced. They all did bell ringing, if you like. <laughs> um, they were kind of an amazingly gifted group of people, and there is a, a fantastic archive of their of their lives, um, and in, including some of their instruments, which we're pulling out to be performed for the first time since the 30s. Um, yeah, it's an amazing family, and with incredible stories to tell of, you know, buying up fleets of modern model 40 Fords to, to convert trucks to take across the Nullarbor and into the wilds of Tasmania. It is a it's a story of progressive show business um, thinking with um, let's just, you know, can-do grits and all of that sort of stuff. I definitely think it's a feature film, but for now we'll have to um, put, we'll just have to uh, be satisfied with a tribute show, which will really, uh, we're reproducing the Coric band, which are all 10, all 10 of the, the players. So they'll play everything from the cornet to the harp and, um, uh, and having uh, Emily Burke, who is a wonderful uh, Tasmanian soprano, who happens to sing in the same the same repertoire, operatic repertoire, 
that Alice Corrick, who was the definitely the sort of premier diva of the of the marvelous Corricks and a, a quite an extraordinary opera singer. So she'll be there, and we'll be playing some of um, Leonard Corrick's films, including the arrival of Prince. Edward, who the Prince of Wales, who was then to go on to become the, the king, who then abdicated to, to marry Wallace Simpson. He appeared in um, Tasmania in 1920 and was filmed uh, in Launceston um, by, by Leonard Corrick. So we're showing that film also. So there's a lot of really delightful things to share with our audiences um, on the marvellous Corricks, including the, the sort of materials around the, the um, ceremony at the Albert Hall where they were given, the family was given the keys to the city of Launceston by the, the then mayor. So it's all, it's a fantastic story with lots of juicy show business detail. Uh, hopefully it's not only the people of Launceston who get to share that story but people from across Australia uh, and in particular, quite I'm sure a few Melbournians will hopefully be heading down to 10 days on the island which is running from the 5th to the 21st of March in locations across Tasmania. Jump online www.10days.org.au for booking details, program information and more. Uh, and I've been chatting with Lindy Hume, the Artistic Director of 10 Days on the Island. Lindy, thanks for joining us. Hopefully plenty of people get down to Tasmania to uh, enjoy the program as well as people from across Tasmania. Should the borders have to close again, fingers crossed, touch wood, etc., they don't. I'm sure that just means more tickets for more Tasmanians. Well, yes, and they're going really fast, which I'm very happy about. Delighted to hear it. So jump online, folks, 10days.org.au. Lindy Hume, thank you so much for joining us. Triple R. What you can enjoy at the moment, however, is an exhibition that's currently showing at Bunjalaka Aboriginal Cultural Centre at Melbourne Museum called Gung, Create, Make, Do, Love. Uh, the work of visual artist Kelly Kumalatsis, who joins us on the line now. Kelly, a very good morning to you. Good morning. Pacha. Which means good morning and peace in Wedagaya. Now, I'm intrigued by this exhibition uh, because it's a blend of two different kind of uh, artistic and cultural practices. Uh, printmaking, which I understand you studied at university, and also uh, drawing on your First Nations background, uh, the art of making possum skin kind of cloaks and, and uh, other works out of possum skin. And you are cr- printing off possum skin is that right yes it's um it's uh, considered to be pretty unorthodox from a western perspective and it's also probably considered by some aboriginal people to be a bit sort of unorthodox so but it, it does combine um an ancient practice of using pelts to make the cloaks which you know which had designs on them so there were, uh, you know that they were sort of decorated with designs so they were decorative um, and they're about identity as well, like the designs. So, yes, it is a pretty unorthodox practice. In fact, when I was doing uni and I, the first time I ever put ink on a fur to put through a print press, I was told by the senior print lecturer that it was a silly idea and it would never work and so, but I still did it. And by the time he got back from the other side of the uni, I'd done all these prints, and word had got back to him. Well, actually, it did work, and it's not too bad either. What was the? Can you remember back to? Was there something that 
uh, a specific kind of moment or impetus where you thought, I want to see what the what kind of pattern, what kind of texture and imagery is created by ink on the pelt? Was there a spur for that or did it just feel yeah, like it? Was, there was a specific time and place. It was um, about 1999 at the Australian Print Workshop. I was accessing it for the first time and my purpose was to print lino cuts onto the skin side of pelts which I was then going to sew into a possum cloak. At that time, I was making possum skin cloaks, and it was specifically to put a lino cut on the skin to decorate it. And so through this process of playing with ink and playing with fur, you could actually see what, by accident, as often happens when you're practising, that something was happening between the ink and the fur. And Ros Adkins... Big Melbourne printmaker. She was the technician at the time at APW and she said, oh, look at this. And I said, oh, wow, it's going on the fur. So initially I actually started doing a lino cut on the fur side and, I mean, that, that got some pretty interesting results. So I've actually got some prints from back then which are lino cut actually on the fur but I ended up also trying to print with the fur, but it all came from that specific time and place. Now, the current exhibition that's on uh, at Bundjalaka at Melbourne Museum not only uh, works on paper, but three-dimensional works, uh, again, constructed out of fur-printed paper, but constructed out of fur-printed tissue paper to create Victorian-era garments, which is kind of intrigues me as a concept on a number of levels aesthetically in terms of the way the, the, the objects you've created look, but also from a perhaps a, a, a kind of political reading of the work. When we think of the Victorian era, we tend to think of, uh, of repression. Uh, we think of colonialism. Uh, and yet here you are kind of, uh, as a, a First Nations artist, kind of almost inverting that colonial aesthetic in your work. Yes. So, look, I'll just say something to you in Wedagaya and then I'll translate it. So, Gungilu Narang Wedagaya Ba Wamba Wamba, Jilang Yapa Ba Kap Kap Chia, Warak Nyang A Jilang Wedagaya Ek Lai Makek. Gung, create, make, do, love, to understand, to know Wedagaya, to know Wamba, language, ancestors, and family. I speak my Wedigaya language, my inheritance. So what what happened originally, um, after ma- doing a lot of printmaking on paper, I don't know where, why I wanted to, but I wanted to start... Oh, that's right. I wanted to make a possum paper cloak. So I thought, yep, I'll try tissue paper because that's easy to work with. I can sew it up into really big pieces easily. So the practice of making items or garments, <clears throat> excuse me, actually originated with wanting to make a possum tissue cloak, possum printed tissue cloak. So that's where I actually started. So originally I was doing all the sewing and just making up big blankets, blankets, possum blankets out of tissue paper. So I made several of those and then I went on to make the first garments were, that were ever made were aprons. And so the aprons were about my my nana and my great aunts and my great grandmother. So my great grandmother was the, the daughter of 
Archibald Pepper, whose tribal name was Willamingat Millamurning, and Wetagaya, that's from the northwest of Victoria. So I wanted to make something for them, my 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 family and my ancestors. And it was really about who are who are these people? What did they do with their lives? What were their experiences? My my the women ancestors and family in my family, they were actually paid for their work. So the aprons are sort of a symbol. Um, we know that so many Aboriginal people were incarcerated, they were enslaved into domestic and farm work and all sorts of outdoor work. We know that. Um, the reason I started making the works was in my family, in my line, who were these people going back? So I, I actually start with my mother... There's my mother's mother, there's my mother's mother's mother, and there's my mother's 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 mother in the exhibition, and the photos are there too. There's also my um, grandfather, my grandfather's father. So we're sort of going back in time, and, and the real question is, who were they and what were their lives like? And so what I actually discovered was they were amazing people, extremely resilient. For instance, Baradette Gondage, Rob Roy Stewart, from tribally, I believe, from around Lake Boga, near, just near Swan Hill. So that was a story that we've come across from, from, you know, through talking to family and also it's recorded in the historical documents in the Swan Hill Library and Historical Society. Uh, Baradette Gondich, um, his mother was a tribal woman and there was a Scotsman who was who got into trouble in the water and he was drowning in that water and his, he was seen by a tribal woman and she came to his rescue and she saved his life and they went on to have four children together and Baradette Gondich, Rob Roy Stewart who was born around 1840 and he, he lived to 94 or 96, so he died in the 30s, 1930s. Uh, he was an amazing man and he had a, had a sister called Jessie. It's very frustrating. What you find is, even though they acknowledge there was a black woman at that time, if it was a woman, you never seem to get the record of her tribal name whereas you do get the records of the men's tribal names as well as their given colonial names, if you like. Yeah, so I moved into three-dimensional works. And the, really the three-dimensional works and the possum skin cloaks, like a two-dimensional big um, sheet of paper turned into a possum cloak, they're actually portraits of people and a time. And specifically looking at my ancestors, um, the Wamba Wamba people, the Gaia people, so that's really what it's about. It's actually, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a really important to understand that it is. It's, it's a black story. It's not just a colonial story. There is a black story. They're, they're black people. They're black stories, and it's a black history. It's not just a white Australian history. Um, one of the really interesting little stories I found from Baradette Gondich was he was asked by a lay want to be archaeologist, where could he find some skulls? And Baradette said to him, Oh, you just go to the you just go to the cemetery and you'll find skulls there. And this white man said, No, no, I want black skulls And Baradette said, Well, what's wrong with white skulls? They're just as good as black skulls. 
So, like, that's an amazing... <laughs> when I found that story, I was really blown away because I did a, work, a bit of work when I was younger around skeletal remains and repatriation of skeletal remains. To find that quote, I was just, you know, I find that amazing. So, so it's really a vehicle. This artwork really is a vehicle for telling stories, starting a conversation and creating a black... Um, verbally, really. Now, you've been working with uh, with possum skins, possum cloaks for over 20 years, I understand. You must... F- do you feel at a stage in your artistic practice and your career, do you feel kind of always confident working with these materials or is it, are you still learning when you use these kind of pelts and skins, whether you're printing or sewing them or printing on them? I'm still developing it, to be honest. Um, I, um, the works that are in the show are actually... I started doing the sewing, but I actually got um, Louise Dalton and Jenny Murray-Jones, two artists, two, two artists that did a lot of... who were actually really good sewers. So I brought in um, other people and Amir um, alterations in Geelong... Um, so I brought in sewers, but, um, no, I still feel like, um, because I work in, like, I currently work in the Department of Education and Training as a Koori Engagement Support Officer, so I actually work to pay my bills, so I'm not making art all the time, so I feel like I take a step, but I'm not, you know, I, I just keep wanting to take another step, so I'm having a break now and just see where we go from here, but, no, it, you know, it's a strange thing because, you know, you know, if you're putting a a piece of fur through a printing press as opposed to, a, you know, a really amazing lino cut by somebody like Tiho Ropinyan from up in Cairns, you know, this Angamuti man. Um, you know, I'm, I'm just playing with ink and getting colours and creating. But for me, there's, there's a, a language developing in the actual printmaking process and, and in the actual print. So I don't feel like I've reached it. I'm still getting different colours, different textures. Um, I've used probably five different presses in my six, actually, and I'm sort of really discovering the different image you get from the different presses. So it's just a constant sort of exploration. If you'd like to see the results of Kelly's explorations, you can visit uh, Bunjalaka Aboriginal Cultural Centre at Melbourne Museum to see the exhibition Goong, Create, Make, Do, Love. It's on until the 30th of May. Uh, Entry is free with museum entry, but bookings are essential, so you'll need to jump online and visit museumsvictoria.com.au forward slash Bunjalaka to find out more details and to book. Kelly Kumalatsis, thank you very much for joining us on Triple R today. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. And my next guest joins me on the line. Morgan Rose uh, was born in New Orleans, grew up in New Mexico and now lives in Melbourne uh, and is a playwright, performance maker, dramaturg and joins us to talk about a work called Grand Gesture, which is both a celebration and perhaps an interrogation of our complicated love-hate relationship with rom-coms. Morgan, good morning. Good morning. 
So you've created this work, Grand Gesture, together with Katrina Cornwell. You've kind of, you're what, co-directing, co-creating, and it's literally a mashup of rom-coms, I understand. Yeah, so we've taken um, a bunch of excerpts from rom-coms, just romantic movies, some of them aren't comedies, um, and smashed them together into some weird Frankenstein monster of, of a script. And then we're performing them verbatim, but with staging that comments on what these rom-coms, what these movies are doing to us. Well, what are they doing to us? Because certainly if you grew up watching particularly rom-coms from, I don't know, from the, the, the 40s onwards, the, the relationships between men and women would certainly now be considered problematic. And even more recent additions to the canon, uh, when Harry met Sally or uh, Fifty Shades of Grey, um, what, are these, what do these kind of films and some of the TV shows that you're referencing in this show as well, what do they teach us uh, and yeah. about relationships and what should we perhaps be trying to unlearn from them? Totally. That's a great question. Um, the, the two of those that you mentioned, Fifty Shades and When Harry Met Sally, are both in the show. Um, and I guess I should preface with saying, like, I really love these movies. Like, I really enjoy watching romantic comedies and romantic movies in general. I'm a big fan. But in being a big fan, I realized that they've had an effect on me. And I think that the effect, there's kind of two big pieces to it. And one of those pieces is like, who's allowed to have access to this beautiful love story that we see repeated over and over in these movies. And it's a very like, there's a narrow definition of who gets that love story if we if we go by what we're seeing in these movies. I mean, they're all young, they're all white, it's all hetero, they're all, like, conventionally attractive. Um, and so if you fit outside of that, <laughs> then, I don't know, what do you get? Do you not get to have this beautiful love story? Um, so that's one piece. And then the other piece is, I think, kind of, the expectations that it sets up for what our love should be in real life and kind of some of the things that it normalizes. Like, it normalizes these these passionate arguments as kind of sexy and something that, you know, we should aspire to. Uh, it normalizes people not taking no for an answer and just pursuing their love no matter what because they feel it so hard and that's set up as a beautiful, wonderful thing. And I know for me, like, I really I really buy into that stuff still, even though I'm interrogating it and trying to, like, pull it out of my body. But, like, it's just something that I've been fed since I was so small that it's really hard to, like, I don't know, as a as a queer person, to, to feel deserving of love, um, to to think of a relationship that's kind of placid and um, and kind as just as romantic as one that where you know you're hurling like phrases at each other in a moment of passion. I think that all of that stuff just is really sticky, and it's hard to get away from. Yeah, the uh, I, certainly um, as you've been talking, I've been thinking about can. Kind of, Images and tropes from uh, from rom coms, uh, uh, which include the idea that 
marriage is the kind of marriage and romantic love is the ultimate ideal that we should all aspire to and also the idea that we see time and time again in these kind of films and tv shows as well the idea of being pursued romantically if i've turned a guy down two or three times and he turns up on my doorstep or outside my apartment holding a boom box and holding up placards telling me how much he loves me for example i'd be calling the police that would be kind of stalky and frightening as opposed to the way it's portrayed in these kind of films which is adorable and romantic and and uh, something to be applauded uh, in terms of the kind of these kind of grand gestures uh, uh, of romance uh, that have obviously inspired the title of the show I think it's also important to, perhaps to note that yes you and Katrina are interrogating these ideas and and kind of questioning how apt and appropriate they are for our modern lives but people shouldn't be coming along to the La Mama courthouse expecting some kind of didactic heavy-handed moral lecture either because based on what I've seen of your previous work, I'm expecting the, uh, an enormous amount of fun and comedy to be explored in Grand Gesture as well. Yeah, you know, I mean, we're also celebrating them, and because like, we, I, I love them, I love these movies, and they're fun to watch, and so we're showing that side of it too. We're kind of trying to come at it from all angles and just explore what's in there, what's in that material when you take it away, when you take it off. Um, you know, the famous actors, when you take it off Ryan Gosling, when you take it off Rachel McAdams, um, what is that text? What is it saying? What are, like, the funny, wild possibilities of it and the darker possibilities of it? Um, and kind of let the audience decide for themselves what, what they make of it. I should just give a quick disclaimer before we keep talking because I've realised that normally at the start of any interview about shows that are presented at La Mama, I acknowledge the fact that I'm the chair of the La Mama Committee of Management. It's a volunteer role. I don't benefit financially from pr promoting uh, La Mama shows, etc. Uh, disclaimer done and out of the way. Um, I'm really intrigued, Morgan, by what fascinates you about um, taking film and television and celebrating them and turning them inside out on stage. Uh, one of your works from a, a couple of years ago that was on at the Mechanics Institute uh, in, um, in Brunswick, uh, The Bachelor Season 17, Episode 5, which was a verbatim recreation of a television episode. What is it about taking existing media and recreating it on stage that fascinates you as a theatre maker? Yeah, I mean, it's something we do all the time with, like, old text, right? We put Shakespeare on and recontextualize it all the time. And I just think that we can do that with everything, right? And I actually probably watch The Bachelor more often than I watch a Shakespeare show. Like, it, it's more ingrained in my life and um, my way of existing than Shakespeare is. And so that's, that's the stuff that I really want to interrogate. And I all the things that we're restaging, like the verbatim pop culture texts that we restage, Kat and I, are things that we really, really cherish and love. Like, I don't think if we fully hated and thought something was, was just a bad piece of art that shouldn't exist, I don't think we would, we would stage that text. We're, we're picking things that we really, really gravitate towards and asking why, why do we gravitate towards it. And Grand Gesture is being presented as part of Love Fest at uh, the La Mama Courthouse. Can you tell us much about the other work that's on the bill as part of Love Fest? 
Yeah, so Lily Fish, who's an extraordinary physical theater performer and a clown, um, has created a work with her um, clown alter ego, Jophis, called Jophis and the Whale, which is also kind of a collision of pop culture and love. So it's using Moby Dick as an, an a starting point and exploring the love between a man and a whale. And it's your typical clowning show, lots of, like, um, feeding off the audience's energy. It's going to be a really great, hilarious show. So uh, that's another one to check out at the La Mama Courthouse. But, uh, Morgan, obviously last year, uh, 2020, was incredibly difficult for theatre makers and performing artists of all stripes, as well as the rest of us who were kind of in lockdown and isolated and couldn't see friends and family or go to weddings and funerals and all those important signifiers in life, uh, whether artistic or more broadly cultural. It was a hard year. But for you as as an artist, as a theatre maker, as a creator, what's it like now to be able to go back into a rehearsal room, to go back into a theatre, to create work with with peers and friends and and colleagues? It's just so exhilarating. Like, the first time I walked into a rehearsal room, I got a bit, like, dizzy. I just wasn't used to, like, having that many people and that sort of energy around me. It was just so exciting that I kind of had to, to take a moment and sit down and let it all settle in. And it's just been the most joyful process, I think, because we all, you know, you take it for granted when you're doing it all the time. And so having this time when we couldn't be together making work and now finally we can, it's just been like the most effervescent room. We've all just had the best time. It's extraordinary. Now, I've mentioned that you and Katrina Cornwall are the co-creators and directors of Grand Gesture, but you've acknowledged all the other uh, cast members as well as co-creators, suggesting that uh, this is kind of that you are as directors are very much involved in listening to and responding to ideas from your cast. Yeah, I mean, it's it's truly a devised work, and these actors were all students at VCA and came out of the devising program. They're recent graduates, and we actually created this with them when they were students at VCA and loved it so much. Like, we we just, um, it was one of the favorite works that Kat and I have ever made. And because it was made at VCA, not a lot of people got to see it. And we were like, this has got to go on. So we're restaging it now that they've all graduated. And they're amazing performers and divisors. Um, and, yeah, the show comes from all of us. Uh, and I love the creative team, uh, Lisa Mebus doing the lighting design, Byron Scallon doing the sound design. Uh, it's, uh, there's a lot of talent involved at this show, and it sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun. It is. It's, it's a fun night out. Grand Gesture is opening at La Mama, uh, the courthouse theatre, uh, because the original La Mama hasn't finished being rebuilt yet, but soon, soon, um, and showing as part of Love Fest 2021, running from the 9th until the 21st of February. No shows on the 15th and the 16th of Feb, so everybody can have a bit of a break. But so from the 9th to the 21st of Feb, Tuesdays, Thursdays, Saturdays at 6.30pm, Wednesdays and Fridays, 8.30pm. And for those of us uh, who, like myself, love a good lazy afternoon matinee, 4pm on Sundays at the La Mama Courthouse Theatre, 349 Drummond Street, Carlton. You can book by calling 9347 That's 9347-6948 or jump online www.lamama.com.
www.grandgrandgrandgrandgrandgrandgrandgrandgrandgrandgrandgrandgrandgrandgrandgrandgrandgrandgrandgrandgrandgrandgrandgrandgrandgrandgrandgrandgrandgrandgrandgrandgrand